Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Marty Irby is with me today. He is the executive director for Animal Wellness Action and its chief lobbyist in D.C. Uh, and as is our custom, we go straight to Marty before we introduce our guest and topic of the show for an update on everything we're doing on the Hill in terms of legislation. Marty, good morning to you, sir. And uh, what you got going on? Well, thank you, Joseph. Good morning to you as well. We've been extremely busy on Capitol Hill as usual, but now that we're getting into the last three quarters of the second year of a Congress, it's really the time where we're trying to focus on what we can actually get done and signed into law. You know, we have probably roughly two dozen bills that we're working on, but there are three or four things that we think we can get done this Congress. I think at this stage in the game, the number one likely bill to pass and get signed into law is the FDA Modernization Act. We've already had it in a hearing in the House of Representatives this year. It's been included, and there is legislation that has to pass through the Congress to reauthorize the FDA's user fees. So this has to get done by July, or the Federal Drug and Food and Drug Administration are going to have to furlough 1,000 employees. We believe we'll get that done, hopefully signed into law by the end of July. And that legislation would very simply take a 1938 statute that requires animal testing for any drug approved by the FDA and makes that optional instead of a requirement so that the best science can be used. Um, have a ton of support, ton of Republicans, ton of Democrats, pharma, biotech, animal groups really working together on that front to pass this legislation. Second, we've talked a lot about the Big Cat Public Safety Act, had Carol Baskin on here before that legislation. I think we can get done. We may have to make a few tweaks to the bill, actually, but uh, we're working hard with the leadership there in Congress to get that done. Third is the Minks Are Super Spreaders Act that we got passed as an amendment to the America Competes Act uh, back in February of this year. And that legislation would end mink farming in the U.S. because mink are the number one super spreader of COVID besides human beings and have already spawned four variants. Mink farms have spawned four variants, at least one here in the U.S. that the CDC actually likely covered up. Um, we are going to have an uphill battle with that legislation because there are a couple of dozen members from states where, of course, there are mink farms that are opposing this and they're very vocal and loud but we do think that we've got a good shot at getting it done. And then lastly, I think the Bear Protection Act is really one that we stand a good shot at getting done. That's a bill that passed the Senate twice 20 years ago by unanimous consent when Mitch McConnell led the legislation It never passed the House. But now that we have some different dynamics in the Congress and the opposition no longer there, we think we could get that done. It addresses the trade in bear bile and bear gallbladders, which the Chinese government has been promoting with no scientific basis as a treatment for COVID-19 since early 2020 when the pandemic first hit. So we want to see these people who are poachers that are out there killing a bear just simply for one little body part and throwing the entire carcass away stop because we're not against hunting. This isn't a hunting issue. This is a matter of just poaching a bear for one small tiny part of their body. So we hope we can get at least 
two or three of those done, I think we really can and probably going to have a really good year, it looks like so far. All right. Excellent. Marty, thank you. You know, I know our work with with Mink is daunting. It's incredible to me that it's even an issue given the permeability of the membrane between humans and mink when it comes to spreading the coronavirus. And I encourage all of our listeners to go to animalwellnessaction.org and look for our mink writing. What's going on with mink and coronavirus is is scary and really does leave us in a position of jeopardy. But um, that is not our topic today. Um, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, as I've noted before. And as any Louisvillian or Kentuckian can tell you, this is the climactic week for the city and the state. Uh, Less than a week away is the Kentucky Derby. Uh, The balloon race has been held, the marathon run, fireworks have lit up the nighttime skies, and all that remains now is for the bacchanalia that will culminate in Saturday's race. What's really interesting this year, however, is the increasing scrutiny being put on thoroughbred racing, uh, largely owing to the notorious malfeasance of one trainer in particular, and that would be Bob Baffert. What a lot of people don't realize, too, uh, and our guest today wrote about this in a recent edition of Louisville's daily newspaper, The Courier-Journal, is the sad fate of many thoroughbreds. In fact, when I tell people that one Kentucky Derby winner, Ferdinand, uh, actually ended up on dinner plates, they are, they're, they're shocked, appalled. And, and that's going to be the focus uh, today. Joining us to discuss it uh, is Hall of Fame jockey Chris McCarran. Uh, he has more than 7,100 career wins. He retired in 2002 after 28 years of racing around tracks uh, across the country. Since then, he has served as an advisor and actor in the film Seabiscuit, held the position of vice president and general manager at Santa Anita Park, worked as a racing analyst for TVG Network, and launched the North American Racing Academy. He authored a strong criticism of the so-called sport of kings in the Daily Paper in Louisville on April 26th. Find it if you can and read it. It's powerful stuff uh, that focused on the sad fate of many thoroughbred horses, and that sad fate is the slaughterhouse. So all that said, uh, Mr. McCarron, thank you very much for joining us in what I'm sure is a busy week for you. Yes. Oh, thanks for having me on. Thanks. Uh, it's nice meeting with you, uh, Joseph and Marty. Yeah. And, and I know that you and Marty have worked together uh, for a number of years. We'll talk about your work together shortly, but I really want to go straight to the April 26th op-ed piece you posted in the Courier Journal. Uh, what led you to write that, Chris? Well, my, my strong desire to uh, eradicate the, the slaughter of, of horses of, of any breed, not just thoroughbreds. Uh, you know, I've seen uh, documentaries showing the, the horrendous transportation methods that are used. Uh, they just, there are people that, that, uh, that sell to the slaughterhouses. They go to these, what they call killer buyer auctions and uh, during the process these horses are put together in trailers without any partitions they're right next to each other very often you'll have a stallion next to a mare and they just fight and they they injure themselves every once in a while a horse will actually die during transportation and then after they reach their destination uh, at the slaughterhouse, 
the uh, in grossly inhumane methods of euthanasia has to be obliterated, eliminated totally. And I know that uh, slaughterhouses in the United States have been have been banned, but uh, in in one way it makes it worse for these horses because they have to travel even farther to, to go down to Mexico or up in Canada to be uh, euthanized at these slaughterhouses for for uh, for human consumption. Additionally, so many of these thoroughbreds have been administered medications. Uh, during their training and racing careers. And these medications are not approved uh, by the FDA to end up in the flesh of animals that are going to be consumed by humans. The whole thing is just horrendous. And uh, I, I felt compelled to uh, share my opinion with, with people. And uh, we were lucky enough to have my op-ed uh, published in both the Courier Journal in Louisville and the Lexington Herald Leader. Sure. What has been the reaction from friends, former colleagues in the industry to your piece? What have you heard? I'll sum it up in one word. Bravo. Great. Well said. Yeah. Thank you. Good. I, I'm glad. I'm glad that's the case. Uh, does it seem to you, um, Chris? that the industry is at a tipping point? Yes, I, you know, I, I think actually we're, we're beyond the tipping point and I, I do see light at the end of this tunnel. Uh, I believe the tipping point happened uh, years ago when in fact the, uh, the government passed a law banning the slaughter of horses for human consumption in our country. However, they have not yet banned the transportation of these poor, poor animals, uh, and, and uh, that it, it just has to stop. It, it cannot continue uh, this way. It's, uh, I believe I'm, a, I'm an activist for um, uh, humane uh, treatment of, of animals of all kinds. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I have two cats at home, and one of them is a rescue. And so um, I, I believe in, in helping our, our poor, less fortunate uh, creatures that we share this planet with. One of the most, well, let me put it this way. You know, you, there are certain news events that when they are observed really leave just almost a traumatic impression on people. Uh, and I remember when eight bells uh, collapsed and had to be euthanized on the track at Churchill Downs. And just what a, a horrific gut draining sensation that was. Are, are people not, I suppose, sensitive to the plight of these horses? Is it a matter of education? Uh, do derby goers and oaks goers and, and fans of, of the other major races are they just more enamored of the glitz and culture and turning a blind eye? Why, why aren't more people, I guess I'm asking in a very awkward way, why aren't more people just going to someplace other than the tracks? It's, uh, it, I, I believe it boils down to ignorance. They, they just don't know. And uh, thanks to uh, podcasts like this one and thanks to the efforts of, 
of Marty Irby and, and so many others in the animal wellness, uh, animal wellness field. And the, uh, the, there's been a lot of effort over the last several years to, uh, to further this movement. And I, getting back to your original question, it, people just don't know. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, with, with efforts uh, such as this and your podcast, uh, we can get the word out there and, and we'll, we can encourage folks to uh, contact their, uh, their local representative to, uh, to get on board and, and make sure that this transportation of, of horses for slaughter is put to a stop. Marty, what can you say about attendance trends, the fiscal health of Churchill Downs Incorporated and other uh, track owners? Are, are these institutions feeling the hit? Well, I think they are and they aren't. You know, it's been an interesting time in the world, primarily because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So you have to think about the fact that in 2020, when every other sport in the world shut down, horse racing did not. And they were on the television, on ESPN. I saw harness racing horses in New York on the television, things you've never seen before. And I think that time period, that six months or nine months, however long it was, um, brought a lot of new people into horse racing. It also brought some criticism from people who had not necessarily watched that much in the way of horse racing. And then I think once we got to the point where we were able to get the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act that Chris and I worked for many, many years together to get signed into law, actually signed into law in December of 2020, that built some confidence back up in the general population, in the betting public, and the people who are out there, the guys in the cheap seats, the guys down there placing the $5 bets and things like that. So uh, it's been a bit of a mixed bag of tricks on that front. But I do think that most recently, the Bob Baffert scandal related to Medina Spirit has kind of brought things uh, back down a little bit because it just seems that this guy has, uh, number one, a way of attracting press um, in any instance that he's, uh, you know, had a, a big ordeal happen, whether it's a drug violation or winning the Triple Crown. It brings a lot of press to him, good, bad or otherwise. Um, and we've seen a continuation of attempts to avoid penalties. Uh, the guy was issued a 90-day suspension. He lost five different times, twice uh, with the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission, uh, and then three more times in the court system all the way up to the appellate court in Kentucky. Um, is now serving that suspension, won't be able to compete in the Triple Crown uh, this year in any of the three races so, um, you know, it's, it's ever evolving. I do hope that in the long run that we see uh, the sport cleaned up, that we see the end of doping, we see the end of slaughter. And I did want to add, too, just in talking about what Chris mentioned earlier and elaborate a little more about the current situation in the U.S., you might recall in previous podcasts, we talked about the horse transportation safety amendment that we got passed through the House of Representatives in 2021 that actually would have banned the transport of horses for the purposes of slaughter across state and federal lines, but we weren't able to get it through the Senate in the final infrastructure bill. I don't think we'll be able to get it done in this Congress, um, but we'll continue to work on it because right now we're actually operating under a de facto ban, a year over year band-aid that we have to lobby for every year to keep the inspection of horse slaughter plants in the U.S. defunded so therefore they can't open and operate and slaughter horses. 
the fix to all of this is what we have been working for more than a decade to pass the SAFE Act that would end horse slaughter permanently and the transport both all in one big package, one piece of legislation that would be comprehensive. And the tide is no question turning in our favor because when we passed that horse transport amendment, we had everyone from the jockey club to PETA endorsing the measure and more than 200 groups and organizations came in with less than, I would say a few days, maybe not even a week and endorsed that measure. So I have to give a tremendous round of applause for people like Chris McCarran, people like Jim Gagliano, Stacy and Arthur Hancock, all these people who have been working far longer than any of us within the horse racing industry to end slaughter itself. Chris, what, what's your opinion of the misadventures of Bob Baffert recently? Has uh, Mr. Baffert become merely a poster child for a set of practices that are virtually commonplace? Uh, I, I don't know about <clears throat> the poster child thing, <clears throat> but uh, I, I will say that I have been an advocate for racing thoroughbreds without any medication of any kind for many, many years. Uh, I, uh, as Marty mentioned, uh, we, we worked on <clears throat> the Heisa bill for, for many, many years. I, may, I personally made six trips <clears throat> up to Washington, D.C. to walk the halls of Congress with Marty, with Jim Gagliano, who's president of the Jockey Club, with uh, uh, numerous other indi like-minded individuals who uh, strove mightily to persuade the legislators, let legislators, to uh, to get on board and, and get this bill passed, and that was successfully completed by President Trump signing the bill into law, uh, as Marty stated back in uh, December of 20. Okay, very very good. And I, and I want to talk about HISA for a moment because um, it it seems that there is a great deal of difficulty in getting USADA uh, to be able to play its role in testing horses for medications. Marty, I'll, you and I have spoken uh, casually about this, um, and it, I'm thinking too of your, your designating Mr. Baffert as the Lance Armstrong of thoroughbred racing. Um, Lance Armstrong, of course, uh, was involved with USADA, and that organization was involved in dethroning uh, him. Uh, where are we in terms of getting appropriate testing on horses vis-a-vis -vis these medications? Well, right now we're in a stage where we're awaiting implementation of the legislation. It was signed into law in December 2020, but it does not take effect until the 1st of July of this year, 2022. And so we'll see it up and running, hopefully in a couple of months. They put a new entity together that the legislation created, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. There's some good folks on there. I know they're trying to work together at this stage based on a call I had just last week with USADA to try to get back to the table. They had basically walked away from negotiations to work out a contract for USADA to do the testing and oversee the enforcement, which is the one thing that we all agreed through, gosh, a half a dozen variations of the bill in various forms over those six or seven years we were lobbying for it. And uh, here at the end, when we're working on the implementation for them to walk away from the table with USADA was a little bit of a kick in the gut, I tell you. But I was encouraged uh, to hear that the executive director said they're back discussing things with USADA. Hopefully they'll be able to get together because I think that is the key to really not only clean up the sport, but to provide confidence for the public. 
because the public has confidence in USADA. They have seen them catch Lance Armstrong. They've seen them oversee the Olympics, so many other sporting events. And it's really a key component, especially when you're talking about people who are betting on a horse and gambling and you have different factors that can or cannot cause that horse to win or end up second or run at all. And people want certainty when they're out there playing the game, working in the sport and trying to uh, maintain the integrity of it. Marty, you, you've also written recently uh, about a horse, Leoban, who received medications nine years expired um, in order to boost the horse's fertility. The horse died almost immediately. Um, what is the latest on that case? Well, it was a very interesting case. Tim Sullivan, uh, sports journalist with the Courier Journal, where Chris's op-ed was published, contacted me a few weeks ago and told me about this incident. It occurred a year or so ago, but it was just brought to light through some document requests and uh, a case with an insurance company. His horse was a breeding stallion. He was at long out of, out of uh, racing and retired and apparently uh, had decided that he didn't really want to breed that much. And so they had um, some medication, a, a cocktail, if you will, of three or four different things uh, administered to the horse. And the horse then very quickly went into anaphylactic shock and dropped dead. Now, I've been involved in the breeding shed. I ran the largest gated horse breeding farm in the world at one time when in my early 20s. So I've actually been through a very similar circumstance uh, on multiple occasions. And I think the key factor is that it wasn't something that would have been harmful necessarily to the horse if the medication had not been expired. And anybody giving any horse, any human, any animal, any medication that has been expired for nine years is absolutely absurd. So I think that the veterinarian here has to be held accountable. After the article came out, we filed a grievance with the Kentucky State Veterinary Medical Examiners Board and the state veterinarian. Some other groups uh, went a little further and filed a grievance with the sheriff's department there. Quite frankly, we did not go that route because as you know, we've been working on a lot of cockfighting in Kentucky and we've had almost zero help from the sheriff's departments down there. But I do hope that the veterinarians take care of this. This is a veterinary issue. This was a licensed veterinarian who administered the drugs and it should be held, held uh, that veterinarian should be held accountable by their peers through that board of veterinary medical examiners. And uh, hopefully we'll ultimately see some sort of restriction on their license or you know even just requirement for them to, to be retrained and have some steps to, to bring themselves back into the fold as a credible veterinarian, because there's no excuse for something like that to happen with nine-year-old medication. It's just absurd. Yeah. And, and Chris, I'm going to offer a different version of a question, of a question I asked a minute ago. Um, is, is this one case that's getting some headlines, but is representative of many more that don't get headlines? How common is this kind of veterinarian malpractice? I'm not uh, privy to other instances of, of uh, mistakes made like, like this. Um, so I, I really don't have an answer uh, to that question. I do believe that uh, most, if not all, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say all, but most places 
whether it's a breeding farm or racetrack or a training training facility, uh, have uh, pro- protocol in place that uh, that keeps incidents like that uh, from being non-transparent. There, there, so much effort has been made to uh, create and and encourage transparency. Uh, case in point, the uh, Kentucky Horse Racing Commission uh, passed uh, a a uh, in-house rule, if you will, that uh, that they will be as as transparent as possible, uh, so that they get out in front of any announcements that are made. Uh, for instance, uh, they don't ever want to see uh, the Medina Spirit. Uh, announcement of uh, a medication that was that was uh, prescribed and given to the horse. Uh, they uh, the, the Kentucky Racing Horse Racing Commission would rather uh, be the ones making such uh, news made, making such announcements, and not uh, leave it up to the the individuals who are intimately involved. Chris, how will you spend Derby Day? Do you still, knowing what you know, find it to be a thrilling day? How do you experience the first Saturday in May as you've come to be a, a more, well, I won't say more savvy, you've clearly obviously been savvy to have had the storied career you have, but as you've become more, I guess, attentive or aware of or vocal on some of the darker sides of this sport, how do you react when the call to the post sounds? Well, I I, very, I get very excited um, when the when the horses are in the paddock. I, I my, well, my excitement begins when, uh, as far as specifically talking about the Derby, my excitement begins when when the horses do the, the famous walkover from the barn area. They come around that clubhouse turn, and there are literally hundreds and hundreds of people on the track with these uh, entrants. For, for the uh, Kentucky Derby. And they, when they get in the paddock, they're being saddled. Uh, very typically, I, I get to go into the paddock and get real close with uh, with all the uh, participants, both equine and human. And uh, yes, and I get goosebumps when they're on the track and they start playing my old Kentucky home. It it just floods me with uh, wonderful memories and, and uh, makes me reflect that I I've been so blessed to have uh, such a fantastic career. You know, uh, and a fantastic career that is. And, you know, I, I still, I, I get that is as well. Uh, but I have to tell you that after the eight bells tragedy, I once the, the gates are opened and they're off, I spend the next couple of minutes in terror uh, that, something is going to happen to one of those horses on the track. As much as I may enjoy the sentimentality, the tradition of the lead up to that sounding of the bell, um, I, I am frightful in a way that I was not before the eight bells tragedy. Um, it's, it's a different experience for me. And certainly it has become more different still the more I've worked with with people like you and Marty and come to this deeper understanding of what really goes into this so-called sport of kinks. Uh, Marty, any final thoughts from you before we close out? 
Well, I just want to thank Chris for being here. Chris has been a great friend. We've known each other, I think, seven or so years now. And, and as he said, he made many trips to Washington, D.C. We walked the halls of Congress together. And I think there's something that, you know, Chris is very passionate about that we haven't discussed really quick, if we might. And that is jockey safety, because there's a number of jockeys paralyzed each year as a result of fatalities with horses and accidents and some drug related and Chris has advocated for the jockeys on Capitol Hill, done a tremendous job, and far too often people forget about these guys. So, Chris, maybe you could add a few words and tell us about your work in that area and actually what, what happens a lot of times. Yes. <clears throat> Thanks, Marty. Um, ever, since I've, ever since I got my first job on the racetrack at Rockingham Park up in Salem, New Hampshire, Back in 1971, between my junior and senior in high school, um, my brother Greg, who had been riding already uh, up at uh, up in New England, uh, he got me this job as a hot walker, and I, I recognized right away that it's a dangerous occupation working around uh, these high-strung uh, thoroughbreds. Uh, so you always have to keep your wits about you. Uh, when I was teaching at my school, I, I told the students going in, if a horse steps on you, kicks you, bites you, or or unseats you, 99% of the time, it's the person's fault, not the horse. And I say that because the horses will tell us, they will signal to us when uh, a, a, an incident like that could occur. So you always have to keep your wits about you. Uh, to to prevent any, uh, you have to be proactive to prevent any incident that would result in injury. As I stated, whether it's getting kicked by a horse or or stepped on, you you really need to be very very careful. And uh, it's a it's a very being a jockey is an incredibly dangerous occupation. Uh, every year, and I testified in front of Congress with this information. It's factual. Every year, two jockeys are killed and two more are left paralyzed. And that's on an annual basis. And that's just in North America. It doesn't account for incidents that uh, occur in the morning during training. Uh, unfortunately, there was a, a terrible accident at Keeneland last week. A 20-year-old uh, young lady from Nebraska was, was on a horse at the Keeneland training track. And uh, it was on Friday and uh, something happened on the track where she came off her mount and uh, she landed on her head and, and uh, it was a fatal injury. Oh my God. Uh, I, that I young lady. That. Was, yeah. That young lady was still enrolled at the North American Racing Academy of the Bluegrass Community and Technical College. She was doing an internship with a trainer named Joe Sharp and uh, the, the horse that she was on somehow unseated her and and she she hit her head and uh they you know she was pronounced dead on the way to the hospital uh from blunt force trauma to the brain and uh it's uh you know it's the other side of the coin is it's an incredibly exciting and can be fruitful occupation riding horses both professionally in the afternoon and riding them in the morning uh, it's, it's a very, very exciting uh, environment, very exciting activity. Uh, the adrenaline rush is second to none as far as I'm concerned. And that's what, uh, that's what I, 
I enjoyed doing. That's what I lived for. And, uh, but uh, I got to a point where uh, I was getting a little long in the tooth, if you will, uh, at the age of 47. And uh, I just decided that, you know, I didn't want to get hurt anymore. So I, I hung up my tech. And, and I think it's probably safe to say that the greater risk the horse is relative to some of these medications, the pain masking ones, et cetera, uh, the greater risk the jockey is, right? Because if the horse breaks down, obviously that can be, be, be horrific for the jockey as well. So they're, they're, they're intertwined to some extent. Oh, yes. It, 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 yeah, you're absolutely right, Joseph. And um, <clears throat> again, I'll go back to the reason why I'm so adamant about, you know, getting that Heisenville passed and, and working with Marty and Valerie Pringle of the HSUS uh, to, to get rid of uh, any, any kind of medication at all, not just pain masking medication, but medication such as Lasix, which is a diuretic and causes a horse to lose anywhere between 30 to 50 pounds after administration of Lasix, and they lose that weight through uh, urination. And, you know, when they, every time the horse works at the track, they, they're administered Lasix, and every time they run, they're administered Lasix, and it's just a, a snowballing situation that has really gotten worse over the years. And, and so, fortunately, this, uh, the Hydra bill will eliminate any kind of medication. It will also promote out-of-competition testing, which I believe will be the key to catching anybody who's not playing by the rules. All right, excellent. Uh, Chris, a, a timely story in the Courier Journal and the Lexington Herald later, a timely guest on our show. Uh, we will all keep our fingers crossed, our prayers upward for a safe run around the Churchill Downs track this coming Saturday. So grateful for your time and Marty for, for yours as well. And what I know is for both of you, a very busy uh, time of the year. And I want to say thank you to, to our listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. A reminder, be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.